Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 259. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing more Jacques Demy. I'm looking at Jacques Demy's first film, Lola, from 1961, starring Anouk Amy. Then I'm moving forward to a movie that influenced Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that is Demi's 1969 American film debut, Model Shop, starring Gary Lockwood and Anouk Amy, playing the same character she played in Lola. Demi's one of my favourite movie directors of all time, and so I thought I'd go and look at a couple of his movies that I hadn't seen before. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, grab a drink and a snack, and we'll get this party on the road. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also... Or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how have you been? I know it's been a little while and I haven't quite kept the schedule, but... I've been kind of doing other stuff and dealing with some issues. But we're getting there. And I really wanted to do these two films because they, of course, they contain the same character in both films. They're set eight years apart on different continents, same director, and one of the stars is the same. But, yeah, this is going to be fun. So what have I been watching? A fair bit, as it turns out. I've really been hitting a few things. I only binged one uh, thing on streaming services. And that was Carnival Row on Amazon. And I liked it. I may well do a podcast about it because I think there's a little bit of depth there. There are some obviously telegraphed plot threads, but I didn't particularly mind it while I was in the middle of them. It's very much urban fantasy and steampunk set in a world where there are fae species, uh, there are human-sized fairies, there are fawns, there are trolls, there are all sorts of other bits. There are little tiny kobolds. It uh, really does have a beautiful um, bit of world building there. And that always makes me appreciate a series. It's a slow burn a little bit. You've got to get three into the eight episodes before things start really churning away. But it, it kind of works. And I, there is a series two to be produced. And I'm there for that as well. I think it's worth your time. I don't think it's the best streaming series that's ever come out. But I don't think by far that it's the worst. Oh, by the way, I am doing the Richard Rule again, which means that by the 15th minute of the podcast, I have to start talking about the movies that the podcasts are actually about. So just foreshadowing that. Uh, there was a thing happened here in Australia on one of our streaming services, SBS On Demand, which is one of the two networks run by the federal government, the other one being the ABC, that I do the radio gig for every week. Well, anyway, SBS On Demand did this thing where they had Tarantino on there curating a season of films on SBS On Demand, and they were films that were related in some way to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I saw a bunch of films that were on that curated um, narrative, um, Tarantino, because, of course, why wouldn't you? So I saw Hammerhead, which is a spy movie. It's a Euro spy movie, sort of from the late 1960s, starring Vince Edwards, who was Ben Casey on TV. It also has Judy Geese in it and a whole bunch of British actors. It's kind of very self-consciously groovy 60s. And as Tarantino points out, Vince Edwards has the worst costuming of anybody in any spy movie ever, with like short sleeve business shirts and really bad blazers and all sorts of things like that. He's just got the worst clothes of any spy you're going to see in any spy movie ever. So I watched that, and I kind of enjoyed it. Um, it's got a nice feel to it, and there's some good location shooting in Portugal, which kind of picks it up a little bit there. I did also watch Easy Rider because, of course, Peter Fonda died recently. He's one of the few 
big celebrities that I've actually encountered and met. Uh, I saw him in about 98 when he came out to promote his movie Uli's Gold, the one he did for Victor Nunez. Lovely guy, nice old school, courteous, hippie kind of guy. And I've got a signed Uli's Gold um, A4 poster by Peter Fonda. And so Easy Rider came out and I was asked to do it for the ABC radio gig. So I rewatched Easy Rider and I enjoyed the experience again. I just enjoyed the whole journey of it, the whole way it encapsulates that change from the optimism of the summer of love to the much darker times in the 1970s. And yeah, it was uh, it's a good movie to revisit now and then and the soundtrack is just so on point. It's fucking ridiculous. So I watched that, then I watched The Wrecking Crew, the Matt Helm movie with Dean Martin and Sharon Tate in it of course. The um fight choreography was by Bruce Lee, so there's all those kind of once upon a time in Hollywood links in that. And of the Matt Helm films, it's the one that's the least cringeworthy. It doesn't have, well, it does have some, but it doesn't have a hell of a lot of the kind of cringy 60s sexism that uh, permeated the other three films, which have their own virtues in some ways. They're not all bad. But um, I watched that. Uh, then I watched, let's see what else I watched from that lot of films. That was about it. I, I did um, kind of rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Sally, and she didn't enjoy it which made it an unpleasant experience for me because she said, I'm going out to do the shopping in the middle of the movie. And I said, no, here's the, you've got to get to the good bit where the Manson family um, attacks the street. And so she stuck around but still didn't enjoy it, though she later on said she liked certain bits of it. She's a little bit like that sometimes with movies and our taste in films coincide on some things and diverge ridiculous amounts on others. So what else did I watch? Um, I watched Resident Evil, the final chapter, just to see what happens with Alice. And yeah, there's lots of action. There's lots of zombies. There's lots of Ian Glynn cloning himself and people being shot and eaten and all sorts of other shit. And it's no better than it has to be. Uh, if you're a Resident Evil fan, it's going to be a, a bit of um, closure for you. But for me, it's just kind of, a, yeah, it's something to watch. Um, I did rewatch Basket Case to the Frank Henenlotter movie. It's on Tubi, the free streaming service that we can have here in Australia. And yeah, it kind of works. It's got that grindhouse wonderfulness that uh, I remember from first seeing it at the Valhalla Cinema when it was in Richmond here in Melbourne. And one of the things I remember about that screening, apart from the fact that the Valhalla, which is no longer there, unfortunately, it's been turned into a strip mall, um, is that about four cockroaches crawled over my feet during the watching of that film because I was at the end of the row where they have those little illuminated numbers at the end of the row so you can tell which row you're in. And yeah, cockroaches galore in that place. It was a, a horrible little flea pit, but it kind of added to the ambience of the film to have lots of um, insects running across your legs. Uh, I watched War Games again, the uh, movie John Badham directed with um, Matthew Broderick. In it, you know, about the computer that's about to start World War Three, And it's a bit by the numbers. It, uh, it's kind of iconic in a way, but it's also kind of prosaic as well. It's, I've got an odd feeling about that one that, yeah, I, I've seen it before and it kind of works kind of, yeah, it's kind of middle of the road. Uh, but it was very popular in its time. It's kind of iconic in the kind of young adult science fiction genre. Uh, then I watched something that I was I knew was bad, but I had high hopes for. And that was Holmes and Watson with John C. Riley and Will Ferrell playing the um, titular characters. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why a movie like Step Brothers works is that the writing's on point and they stick to the writing and there's a strong through line of plot there. In this one, there isn't. There are anachronisms everywhere. There's a lot of ad-libbing, and they don't actually pick the best ad-libs to put into the film itself. They're on the extras. And it's, the accents are all over the place. Uh, the supporting cast isn't too bad. Rebecca Hall's very good in it, and Lauren Lapkus, and a few others. But for the most part, it just doesn't work. There's um, a kind of vitality and a kind of craziness that you need to make this particular kind of genre work work. And this is sadly lacking. So then I went on to another failure, uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix, which is 
just fucking ordinary, to be honest with you. It's, it's a really ordinary superhero movie. It doesn't take the characters any further forward than they were before the movie was made. It's, yeah, it's kind of product in the same way that they make sausages out of by grinding up pig's ears. It's, it's just a product. Um, then I watched The Dark Crystal, which I'm going to be doing next week on the ABC radio gig because Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance or whatever it's called, is out on Netflix and so everybody's going back to watch the dark Muppet movie that Jim Henson made in the 1982. Um, I'm very conflicted about this film. I've got friends who love it like ice cream. But for me, um, I, I admire the artistry of it. It's got a tremendous world building. It's really beautiful. Evoking the world using puppets is a wonderfully crazy endeavor. And the, uh, the artistry of it is unquestionable. But the story's the usual good versus evil stuff, and the chosen one has to go and do a whole bunch of stuff to get things to happen. And it's a bit new agey, and um, it's, it's got dumb things like there are only two gelflings left in the world, so obviously their species is dying out in spite of the fact they find each other. And one assumes in a kind of very oblique way fall in love. There are, um, yeah, it's really odd to that good versus evil dynamic in this one because, of course, the evil things have got to be incredibly ugly and they eat food that are that's weird. So in some ways they're coded as being foreigners who have weird food tastes and eat things weirdly and act differently and look strange. It's There's a subtext here that I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with, though I may be reading too deeply into it. Haven't seen the Netflix series yet, but I'll probably have to watch an episode or two before Wednesday in order to fulfill my self-imposed obligation to the ABC. But, yeah, um, for me it doesn't work, but I admire what it does. So I'll talk about it to that extent. Uh, Then I went really low market and watched a movie called Zombies, which is a whole bunch of zombie animals in a zoo. And it's a movie made by the Asylum who make incredibly low-budget movies. The CG's not bad in this one in some parts. It, it kind of works. Got a whole bunch of kind of um, aspiring actors running around and getting crunched by things. There's a really great scene, which isn't great CG, but is conceptually brilliant, of a guy being ripped apart by two zombie giraffes. So that moment in itself is worth the price of admission to me. Then I watched an Australian movie called Occupation, which is an alien invasion film filmed in Mwilumbar up in northern New South Wales. Uh, it's kind of okay. It really does work. It's got a little bit in common with movies like Skyline, but it's very much an Australian film. Uh, you get to see Sydney wrecked, and I always hate to see my hometown abused in that way. The aliens are kind of cool. Uh, there's a third act that makes things even more interesting. And it's got Temuera Morrison in it. So it's not a bad thing at all. I think it works. I think there's some good characters in there. I think the arc of it's really great. And it's much better than Tomorrow When the World Began. Because John Marsden, the guy who wrote the original novels, is a racist and a stupid asshole for a number of reasons I won't go into right now. Actually, I will. He runs a school. And he made this statement that bullying is caused by people not being mainstream. And basically victim-blaming people who were bullied at school. So fuck John Marsden and fuck all of his books. So that's pretty much been what I've been watching. By the way, I've got a new keyboard for the computer I'm working on here. Um, I kind of went retro. I've got a really nice Bluetooth keyboard, and there's nothing at all wrong with it. But Sal and I saw that they were selling um, RGB-lit pseudo-mechanical keyboards, old-school clickety-clack keyboards, for about 20 bucks each on eBay. And so we bought a couple of them, and I've got to say, it's a lot of fun using this one. It does make a lot of noise, and I'll show you the kind of noise it makes. But it definitely lights up the computer desk, so um, I'm kind of glad I bought it. If I want to do any serious writing, of course, I'm going to go back to the smooth and easy Bluetooth keyboard, which is sitting over to my right. But it's kind of nice having an RGB keyboard. I, I really like the fact that it's there. And it was cheap enough just to be a bit of fun to buy, and I'm using it at the moment. So we're heading up on 15 minutes, so I'd better start talking about the movies. 
And the first one, of course, is Lola, Jacques Demy's first film, which he did as an homage to Max Ophel's and also to the Blue Angel, the Joseph von Sternberg film. And, of course, um, Max Ophel's did Lola Montez in the 1950s. But uh, Demy's first movie is a wonderfully joyous film. I'm just going to play you a little bit of Anouk Amy, the titular character in Lola, rehearsing her nightclub act in Le El Dorado, the cabaret she works at in Nantes in rural um, France. And it's a joy. I mean, it's much better with the visuals, of course, but I'm going to give you the audio anyway just to kind of give you a feel for the character. It probably helps if you speak French, but you can get the gist of it if you don't. Celle qui rit à tout propos, celle qui dit l'amour c'est beau, celle qui plaît sans plaisanter, reçoit sans les dédommager les hommages des hommages et les bravos des braves gars, les hurrahs, les viens avec moi. Celle qui rit de tout cela, qui veut plaire sans tenir là, c'est moi, c'est Lola. Celle qui dit, v'là un bateau, v'là un samedi, v'là des matelots, on va tourner, on va danser, on va flirter sans y penser, on va rire et virevolter. Mais, mais, quand elle met l'eau là, quand elle leur dit, ça va comme ça, tiens-toi bien, moi je m'en tiens là. C'est moi, c'est moi Lola. Celle qui dit bientôt, bientôt et qui sourit dans votre dos Tout enfoncé dans ses pensées d'espoir si vous les saviez Un énorme espoir insensé Celle qui n'ouvrira ses bras qu'à celui qu'elle reconnaîtra Entre mille, entre cent ou trois à qui elle dira Toi, 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 c'est moi, c'est moi Lola There's something about Jacques Demy movies that I find magical They make you fall in love with the female protagonist in the best possible way. And having somebody who's as talented and charismatic and beautiful as Anouk Amy playing the titular character doesn't hurt at all. This movie was made just after she did her gig in La Dolce Vita with Marcello Mastroianni for Fellini. So she had a reputation. Um, and she spent the previous decade making smaller roles in, in other films and kind of paying her dues. But Lola, the character she plays, whose real name is Cecile, is an interesting character. Um, the movie takes place, as I said, in Nantes in France, which is a, a coastal town on the Atlantic, but it's actually slightly inland and on a very wide river, which makes it a, a port town. Uh, there's a young man called Roland Cassard, played by Marc Michel, who also played the character, the same character, in 1964's The Umbrella of Cherbourg. He's the guy who marries Jean Vieve in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Exactly the same character. And that's one of the things Demi did, was he has the same character, not necessarily in a feature role, but in a secondary role in some cases, in other films. So if you go through his 1960s films, they're all linked together by common characters. Anyway, Roland is um, living in Nantes. He's bored with his job. He wants to kind of move on. And he happens to have a chance encounter with Lola, with whom he went to school during the war. And he had a crush on her then, and he kind of um, falls in love with her again and is quite smitten with her. Now, Lola works as a cabaret dancer, as I said, in um, El Dorado, the kind of slightly down-market cabaret in Nantes, which mostly caters to sailors and businessmen on um, business trips. The girls do a cabaret. They dance with the clients. There's an implication of um, sex work there, but it's not heavily emphasised in this. And um, Lola also has a seven-year-old son who is the son of the man that Lola's first, who was Lola's first love, a guy called Michel, which is kind of confusing because the actor who plays Roland Cassard is an actor called Mark Michel. Uh, the names kind of cross over a little bit there, so I'll try to keep them straight for you. So not only is there that dynamic working, 
but there's also a an American sailor in town called Frankie. He's played by an American actor called Alan Scott, which is also the name of the first Green Lantern, but I'm kind of crossing things over there. Uh, Alan Scott had a, a fairly long career in France playing mostly, of course, Americans. And um, his most recent screen role was in 1977, so he did have a fairly long career there. Um, he was born in New Jersey, in fact, and his character in this Frankie the Sailor is a kind of friend of Lola's. He slept with her once, but they kind of agree to be friends. And that's one of the weird things that Lola has as part of her charm is she has this ability to turn lovers and people who are smitten with her into good friends. And she does this with Frankie. She does this with um, Rakasar. Uh, she kind of is, she doesn't mean badly to anybody. She's a kind of, not an angelic figure because she's kind of earthy as well. But she's definitely somebody who has, has a soft heart. And like a few of the women in this movie, there's a sadness she has because her life hasn't gone the way that she wanted it to go. Uh, Michelle, her lover, is gone. She's raising her son as a single mother, and single mothers are another theme that ran through a lot of Demi's movies, including, um, of course, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort, two of my favourite films. And the kind of ability for women to raise children without a man in their life and the kind of strength that they have to show, not a kind of masculine sort of strength, but that endurance that single mothers have is um, one of the underlying themes in a lot of Demi's movies, and I kind of like that as well. It's not a narrative that was particularly spoken of in a lot of other films at the time. Frankie makes very platonic friends with a 14-year-old girl in a, a tobacconist because they both want the last copy of a comic book. And um, her name is, is actually Cecile as well. So, again, you get some crossovers there. Lola's real name is Cecile. There's a young Cecile as well, whose life appears to be starting to parallel the older Cecile's, but doesn't. Frankie's lonely. He wants company. He, talk, he wants to learn French. Young Cecile wants to learn English. So they walk around town and talk to each other to kind of help with their language skills. Um, Cecile's mother, uh, Madame Desnoyers, played by Elena Labodette, doesn't approve of this, of course, and, and she's herself raising Cecile as a single mother. And Cecile wants to go and travel to Cherbourg, where her uncle lives. And we find out a little more about the uncle uh, later in the movie as well. So there are all sorts of plot threads running there. Most of the movie takes place with people walking around the locations in Nantes, along the waterfront, in waterfront cafes. Um, Roland's apartment is near a, a dockyard. The cabaret is um, on a street near the waterfront. We get all these wonderful, beautifully evoked black and white locations in Knot, which really do um, make the location one of the characters in this film in the best possible way. There's a wonderful scene between Lola and Roland when they're walking in this old Bella Poke era arcade of shops and the way that um, Jacques Demy frames the shots and moves the camera around to the next background as they have this conversation about um, Ro Roland loves Lola, but Lola is still in love with her first love, Michelle. And during the conversation of them walking up the stairs of this arcade and around a gallery of shops at the top of it, the relationship and the conversation evolves so that Lola and Roland do become close friends during the duration of that conversation. And it's wonderfully done. The um, blocking of the scene, it's a, pretty much a lot of it's in one or two takes, is really, really interesting. And it makes us deeply intimate with the conversation that's taking place between the two characters. It's one of my favourite shots now in any Jacques Demy movie because I just like the fact that um, a lot of the light's natural and, it, and then, of course, um, Demy used his cinematographer, Raoul Coutard, who was a master of this kind of thing, to use natural light in a lot of cases. And it really does work. There's a lot of light coming from windows in this movie. 
And so a lot of the characters are kind of lit from one side. And that really does give you a, a kind of documentary feel, while the whole narrative and the story is kind of a magic realism thing. It, um, there are people overlapping and there are character lives and character plot arcs overlapping. So you've got that, that artificiality, which is a part of the magic of um, Jacques Demy movies. And there's a kind of mythologizing about first loves in this film, not in any kind of prurient way or any kind of unrealistic way in a sense, but maybe the underlying philosophy and the underlying religion of the film is that first loves are the best loves. And though the events of this and then Model Shop prove that that's not necessarily something, uh, a belief system that can play long-term in a person's life, it is a belief that a number of the characters in this movie hold. And I find that really, really interesting, the way that he makes that assumption about the way life is, and his characters carry that through, and that becomes one of the engines for the plot and the engines for the way the movie unfolds. And he takes his time with this too. It's not a particularly long film, but he does allow the characters to go about their daily lives, to walk down the streets, to do things, to showcase the city. Um, and one of the things that Jimmy, Demi's always done fantastically is that kind of making of a location into an important part of the film that he's making. And Lola, the character, is kind of complex. She is vain, and of course she's a cabaret performer, so she's obviously got to look good. She um, is very engaged and loving to her co-workers as well. There are a number of the other women who work at the cabaret, one of whom is played by Corinne Machard, who was the star of Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. And of course, Agnes Varda was the wife of Jacques Demy. And she turns up in there as Daisy, one of the characters in there, uh, in the cabaret when they're rehearsing and they're kind of hanging around and talking with each other. This is just a beautiful film. And um, even though this is the first time I've seen it, I love it. It's actually available in its entirety on YouTube at the moment. I don't know how long that'll last. But it also has uh, English language subtitles. I did acquire this movie through the usual subterranean means, but I've now bought a copy. The only place I could find with a reasonably priced copy of it was Taiwan of all places there's a Taiwanese legal pressing of it which has um, obviously Chinese subtitles but also English subtitles so I'm uh, in the process of getting that delivered to make it part of my collection Lola like a lot of Jacques Demi movies was in a bad state and it's been restored Agnes Varda supervised the restoration of a number of his films including this one from various sources. The originals had a lot of problems um, with deterioration, and so they found other copies of it. They put it all together. They digitally restored a lot of it, and it looks fantastic. Uh, you can't tell that it's been restored at all. It's masterfully done, and it would have been a crime against the arts to not have this film restored, just the same way that the Young Girls of Rochefort was restored. I don't know whether The Umbrellas of Cherbourg was, but I definitely know that Rochefort was. And to kind of give us this really interesting director's first film, and one of the things I noticed about it, and one of the things that makes it a movie that I really love, is that there are no mean-spirited characters in the movie. There are sad characters. There are characters who have met adversity. There are characters that are unhappy with each other and there are characters who um, are kind of chiding their children, particularly young Cecile's mother. But there's never a kind of mean-spiritedness or an anger to any of it. There's more concern. And even though there are a number of sad characters in it, a lot of the people aren't living the lives that they want to live in some ways. It doesn't spill over into nastiness in the slightest bit there's sadness there's regret there's loss but there isn't bitterness in any of the characters in this film and i love that the fact that they haven't decided to go down that dark path of becoming cynical none of them are they kind of accept that things haven't gone the way that the, 
They particularly wanted to. Some accepted more than others. Some are unable to accept it. But for the most part, the characters accept the fact that life does have its travails, and yet they keep living and they keep engaging with each other and they keep talking and they keep um, doing things and just living that day-to-day life. And yet the movie isn't a sad movie in itself. That little kind of seed of optimism that all of the characters hold within themselves, that something is going to happen or that they can do something that will make something wonderful happen. Frankie the Sailor and young Cecile go to the local fair and go on some rides. And again, it's it's purely platonic. They're just doing it because they want company. Uh, There's no kind of creepiness about the way that it's done, which is in itself quite an achievement. But they kind of enjoy the joy of that. You can tell Lola loves her work because the way that she rehearses and the way she does that little song I played earlier director camera shows that she's kind of likes what she does and the interesting thing is they don't make her professionally wonderful as a dancer or a singer her voice is slightly out of tune her kind of dancing is more a few leg movements that she might have seen Zizi Jean Mare do on television um, she is kind of a, a second rate cabaret performer and in spite of that you know that this woman has that spark and that wonderfulness that make her able to win the hearts of these men, even though her heart is with somebody who left her seven years ago. So this is a romantic film, unashamedly and full-heartedly, and completely a romantic film. And yet it doesn't settle for the Hollywood ending. It doesn't give that kind of abrupt and complete closure that you get from a Hollywood romantic film of the time, which was dumbed down because of the production code, which was infantilized because of that production code. If you compare, say, Lola with Pillow Talk or one of those kind of movies, there really is a much more grown-up viewpoint that's allowed to be shown in this film. Though there were movies um, around this time in America that did much more than that. One that comes to mind, and the one which in some ways parallels Lola, even though it was made in this very same year, is um, A Cold Wind in August, directed by Alexander Singer, starring Lola Albright, where she plays a, a, a a woman in her 30s working as a stripper in a burlesque and is um, starts a form of relationship with a 70-year-old boy. That has a much more mature viewpoint than a lot of other American films at the time. We should try to find a copy of A Cold Wind in August and do that in a future podcast. I'll definitely add that to the list because I think that uh, there's some stuff there that is worth looking at. Maybe I'll parallel it with a movie like Tea and Sympathy, uh, the Deborah Carr movie, which is become a camp classic in a lot of ways but to get back to Lola I I just the magic of what um, Demi and Raul Kutahi's cinematographer does is something that I, I try to analyse it and I try to look through the ways that they made it work and there's a kind of simplicity to the way the movie is put together and to the plot and to the characters and things like that but there's also a complexity at the same time. The roles, the characters feel lived in to a way that they don't in a lot of American films of the time. Um, and they feel like they are of the place that they're in. So they do feel like characters who live in Nantes, who aspire to other things and who um, do have a prelude to this movie, there's a scene with young Cecile and her mother where um, Cecile asks her mother what she's making for dinner and she says onion tart and Cecile goes, oh good, they've had onion tart before, They kind of, they, she knows her mother makes a good onion tart and she's happy that it's going to be for dinner. So there's those little moments which give us prelude to the, to the film and to give us that lived-in feel. And so the depth of this film is sometimes in the subtleness of some of the things said. And they can be very, very prosaic and ordinary everyday things. What are we having for dinner? 
and yet that kind of gives us a bit of depth to the relationship between the young girl and her mother, whose husband died during the war and who was raising a, a young girl by herself without any money. She's, she's built herself up from having absolutely nothing after the war ended. And she does tell this to um, Roland Kassar when they have dinner. Kind of emotional maturity there, even though this is an unashamedly romantic movie. And in some cultures, particularly um, Anglophone cultures, romance is seen as the folly of youth, where it's not necessarily that. And that kind of makes me drawn towards this kind of a movie because it's on the side of romance. It's saying whoever you are under whatever circumstances and whatever part of your life and you know wherever you live, there's that optimism about connecting with other human beings that's in the air if you want it to be. That's probably what Demi's mythologizing of love is, that potential for something to happen. Uh, and one of well, obviously, uh, I should mention too, Michelle Legrand's music for um, Lola, where he uses the song which becomes Watch What Happens in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. In fact, the song in um, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is called Recite de Cassar, so it actually relates directly to Roland Cassar. So this was the first time I saw Lola. I actually saw, watched it twice. And I love the fact that every year, without fail, I find a new movie that I love. And this is in the top maybe two or three of 2019 that I love. It just has everything I want in a certain kind of movie. And I feel really fortunate to live in a time and place where I can discover new films without too much difficulty. And if I just kind of follow the trail and follow people whose other movies I like or I listen to other people who know about certain things, I can find my way to a movie like Lola. So I'm just going to take a break now before I talk about Model Shop, which is the other story of Lola. And while I'm taking that break, I'm going to play you Recite de Cassard from Michel Legrand's music for La Parapluie de Cherbourg. And this will probably, as much as Lola, the song at the start, this will give you the feel of Lola as much as I possibly could with all of the talking I've been doing. So I'll be back with Model Shop in just a couple of minutes. Autrefois, j'aimais une femme Elle ne m'aimait pas On l'appelait Lola Autrefois, déçu, j'ai voulu oublier Alors j'ai quitté la France Je suis allé au bout du La vie me paraissait sans attrait Et puis le hasard M'a mis sur votre route Dès que j'ai vu Geneviève J'ai su que je l'attendais Depuis cette rencontre Ma vie a pris un autre sens À tout instant c'est elle que je vois Je ne vis que pour elle Je ne pense plus qu'à elle Geneviève me donnera elle-même sa réponse Je ne sais que vous dire 
Mais ne me dites rien, Geneviève décidera elle-même. Bonsoir, madame. Bonsoir, monsieur Cassin. Okay, let's move on to model shop. Uh, 1969, different continent, different country. It's in colour, and Jacques Demy has had a lot of success with the films in between Lola and the model shop particularly The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, The Young Girls of Rochefort, and a movie I haven't watched, but I'm going to watch very, very soon, Bay of Angels, which has Jean Moreau in it. So these three movies in between these two films were incredibly successful um, in their own ways. Of course, he got Academy Award nominations for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was a crazy hit in 1964. And in 1969, he and Agnes Varda went to Los Angeles, and fell in love with it, and decided they were going to make a movie there. And in doing that, they resurrected Lola and gave us the next stage of her life. So here's the trailer for Model Shop, which, as I said before, is an influence on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think the guy doing the VO in this trailer is William Conrad. Hi. Hi. The bed or the armchair? doesn't matter. The woman of a man and a woman, Anuka Me. The man from 2001, A Space Odyssey, Gary Lockwood, co-starring Alexandra Hay, Model Shop. It's kind of degrading work, isn't it? Why do you do it? To make my living. From the creative camera of Jacques Demy, director of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, a touching love story with a touch of now. I never really, you know, felt it before, but I love you. Model Shop, in color. For mature audiences, parental discretion advised. I'm really glad Quentin Tarantino made a point of outlining that Model Shop is one of the influences for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's the neglected Jacques Demy movie. I mean, there are other films that came after it, like Peur de Ney and a Version of the Pied Piper and a few other things. But of that peak period of his, between 1961 and 1969, this is The Ugly Child, in a sense. But it's also the film that makes it clear to the audience that all four of the Jacques Demy films up to this point are set in the same narrative universe. Now, there's going to be a slight spoiler for the end of Lola here, and I can't avoid it because of what I want to say about that fact that this is the same narrative universe. People have compared it to Balzac and Proust, where different characters come in and out. Now, at the end of Lola, Lola's um, husband slash boyfriend and the father of her child, Michelle, returns and Lola drives away with him in a big American convertible off into their future together. Then we cut to 1969 with Model Shop and Lola is working in a model shop which is a kind of place where guys go to photograph scantily clad women and then they go to another place and get the photos processed and take them home and clearly jerk off to them. So Lola's working as one of the models in a model shop. And as she talks to and develops a kind of friendship relationship with George, the young architect played by Gary Lockwood in the film, she tells him that Michelle ran off with a woman who was a gambler in Las Vegas called Jackie LeMaster, who was the character played by Jean Moreau in Bay of Angels. So it is five films that are in the same narrative universe. Not four, as I said previously. So all five films, Lola, Bay of Angels, Young Brothers of Cherbourg, The Young Girls of Rochefort, where Lola is mentioned, and Model Shop are in the same narrative universe, in the same way that a lot of Tarantino films are in the same narrative universe, where Red Apple's Tobacco is, and um, Big Kahuna Burgers, and all those kind of things. So for this one, which was made by Columbia Pictures, they gave a million dollars to um, Demi to make this film. 
George is a young architect who's just quit his job. He lives in Marina del Rey in a little cottage with a whole bunch of oil pumps around it with his girlfriend and aspiring actress called Gloria, played by Alexandra Hay. And his car's about to be repossessed. He has a really nice MG, costing 1500 bucks, which is a lot of money in those days. And his quest for the day is to scrounge $100 to pay for the back payments that he owes on the car. George and Gloria are having problems in their relationship. George doesn't want to be a corporate kind of architect. He wants to do his own thing. He wants to build houses that mean something rather than just be part of a much larger business. And he's on the verge of being conscripted into the Vietnam War. And in fact, during the arc of the movie, he does get his call-up notice and has to report to San Francisco after the weekend in order to be inducted into the army. This is a theme that Demi has hit before in a couple of his films. Here in um, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Jean Vieux's first love, Guy, is conscripted and then she finds out she's pregnant. He's conscripted into the Algerian War in France, whereas George is going to be conscripted into Vietnam. And also uh, Maxence in The Young Girls of Rochefort is in the Navy and he's just waiting for the day when his um, mandatory service comes up so he can be an artist. He clearly sees military service as something that interrupts what people should actually be doing. And I've got some sympathy for that point of view. So George drives around Los Angeles. He's um, kind of listening to the radio and hanging out with friends. He gets $100 off some friends in a band who is played by a real band called Spirit who did the soundtrack to a model shop. So it gets a little bit inception-y there. And he has $100 he needs. Fairly early in the movie. His friends are quite good. George obviously has a relationship with them and, and he's kind of involved in his community. It feels very un-American in some ways. It feels more like a that French sense of community that we got in, in movies like Lola and, of course, also in The Young Girls of um, Rochefort. But anyway, George has got the 100 bucks, and he sees a beautiful foreign woman in a white convertible and follows her to a mansion in the hills. And he sees her again walking into the model shop. And George goes in and decides to see her there he's kind of got an id fix that uh, she's an attractive woman he doesn't have too much going on his relationship's in trouble and he goes and spends 12 dollars of the 100 dollars to get a photo session with this mysterious woman who turns out to be lola slash cecile from lola he talks with her and asks her why she does this stuff she says she wants to get money so she can return to france and be with her young son who's living there with relatives. And so her whole point is she's been abandoned by her husband in Las Vegas, who takes up with a female gambler named Jackie, who is played by Jean Moreau, and she's trying to get back to France, so she does whatever she needs to do to get the money she needs to fly back home. And being in the model shop is what she needs to do for that. This movie has a very different look than the other Demi movies, because apart from anything else, the cinematographer isn't, um, Raoul Coutard, it's a guy called Michel Hugo, who was a French cinematographer who did most of his work in America. He has some really interesting credits, and I'm going to kind of pause for a moment to take a look at those. He was DP in the, the TV series of Mission Impossible. He was the DP in Head, the Monkeys movie. And there's some kind of, you can, you can see the similarities between Head in some scenes and Model Shop. He also did the Finks, P-H-Y-N-X, which is a movie I really should hit at some stage in a future podcast, which is totally crazy. And he did a whole bunch of TV movies. He was the DP on The Night Stalker, the Darren McGavin Night Stalker, for instance. Um, the Spook Who Sat By The Door, I did that in a previous podcast. The TV series of Shaft, and then did a whole bunch of episodes of things like The Streets of San Francisco. So he definitely isn't Raul Kutab, but he's a good, honest kind of DP. So George, kind of in the same way that um, Raul Kassad does, sees Lola on the street and is infatuated with her. And this time they're both in convertibles, which is a very Los Angeles kind of thing, of course. And over the arc of the story, the same thing happens with Lola that happened in Lola. 
in that um, he, George and Lola sleep together one night, the last night he's got before he has to go back to San Francisco to be inducted. And they become good friends. And the gift that Lola gives George is the knowledge that he can be in love. His relationship with Gloria, we see a lot of that in the earlier part of the film. She wanted to get married, he didn't. She wanted a child, he didn't. He couldn't commit because he just hadn't lit that wick within himself to make that um, light glow, that light of love. And, of course, this is part of Demi's mythologizing of love. Uh, George doesn't have that fire lit until he meets and spends a da- some time with Lola. People have said that a lot of Jack Demi movies that weren't musicals are musicals without music, and Model Shop is kind of that. There is music in it, the kind of folk rock stuff that Spirit do for the soundtrack album, but it's not as integral to the movie as Michel Legrand music was in his two previous musicals, and of course to Lola as well. I can't talk about how that music integrates into Bay of Angels yet because I haven't seen it, but I will. Now, Gary Lockwood, who's done episodic TV before he did 2001, he was in one of the Star Trek pilots, of course, and he was um, also in a TV series, I think, called The Sergeant, where he played a military officer. So he'd been around Hollywood since the late 1950s. And he's not the best or most demonstrative of actors. He does, however, have that kind of low-key feel that Jacques Demy looked for in some of his male protagonists. He doesn't want Howard Keel bellowing a baritone. He wants low-key, thoughtful men, and Gary Lockwood kind of gets that and does that okay. I didn't like the way he played the character of George the first time I saw the film, but when I re-watched it very recently, I could kind of dig where he was coming from. I thought that he did give what that emotional stuntedness that George has until right near the end of the film. That kind of, yeah, he talks about his family background a bit and there's kind of understandable reasons why George isn't emotionally connected to his own feelings. But like all of Jacques Demy's protagonists, he's not a bad guy. Yeah, he's kind of does take these photos of um, Lola slash Cecile and Gloria finds out about them, but Gloria has also started a relationship with somebody who can help her acting career, and she leaves George to be with that person. And so at the end of the film, it's really kind of, it can be seen two ways, but the way that Demi angles it is. George has lost his car, it's finally been repossessed because he spent some of the money and he didn't give it to the um, loan company to pay for the back um, payments on his car. He's lost his relationship with Gloria and she's moved out and he's about to be inducted in the army. But it's not a sad story because he has become aware of and connected to his own emotions. And even though he, in an altruistic move, and again, this is a slight spoiler, but don't let that stop you from ever seeing the film. He gives the rest of the money that he has to Lola so that she can finally buy the airfare to get back to France to be with her son. And he does it not as much because he loves her, because it's an infatuation, it's not really love, but because she has lit that spark in him where he can love. So she's given him the potential to love somebody at some stage in the future, should he, of course, survive Vietnam. And so he's become aware of the potential for love. And a lot of Demi's stuff is about that potential for love, even when it's not fulfilled. It's that being open to it and that optimism and that readiness to be loved that's one of the main themes in a lot of Jacques Demy's movies. But in a sense, this was a disappointing film for both Jacques Demy and Agnes Varda because Columbia Pictures just threw it out there as a second feature in drive-ins. They didn't promote it particularly. That low-key trailer that I played for you earlier gives an indication of that. They really didn't know what they had and they didn't realise that it would be part of that continuum of the career of quite an important French filmmaker. So that's the George side of it. The Lola side of it, the Cecile side of it, is that she is kind of depressed. Obviously, her the love of her life has run off with a female gambler, and it's obviously the Jean Moreau character, so you know, the, running away with Jean Moreau is something that 
anybody who's ever seen a Jean Moreau movie will find understandable. But she said it's made her very sad and she's kind of listless and she drifted through life for a little bit after that happened. And she was kind of depressed, but she was never suicidal. She kind of, you know, had to have that grieving time for the relationship and to re-centre herself for what she wanted, which is obviously to be with her son. And in Lola, um, Cecile also says that she's a good mother and you see her kind of getting her kid dressed for school and things like that. And she is a good mother, but because she's run off with her um, love and left her kid with friends and family because she was following an unrealistic dream, she's realised that and she wants to kind of recapture what's really important, which is her child and not the unfaithful Michelle. So she gets some closure. She gets to find her best self in some ways in a way that mirrors George finding his best self, which is somebody who is in touch with his feelings. Now, as I said, Columbia Pictures just basically threw the movie away. By the way, one of the other bits of trivia about this film is that originally Jacques Demy wanted a new face for the leading role. I'm reading this off Wikipedia. And he chose a carpenter working around Los Angeles called Harrison Ford. Columbia Pictures didn't want Harrison Ford. So Gary Lockwood got the cast, or got cast based on his role in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And Demi said Lockwood had nothing to do in Space Odyssey, but he knew how to move. He was very natural and very simple. And that's perfect for the role because you don't need a kind of Hollywood leading man kind of actor for this kind of role. You need an everyman. And Gary Lockwood did a good job on this one, perhaps his best role in a movie. In 2001, he and Keir Jule were fucking nulls. I mean, I've got no love for 2001 as a movie. I think that the human characters in it and the wonder and the adventure of a space were totally pissed away by Stanley Kubrick. But in this one, it works. And there's a lot of cool stuff in Los Angeles. One of the things that Tarantino finds attractive about the film is the fact that it was filmed on location in LA at the time. And you see some, you see old shops, you see the photo store where the photos get developed from the model shop and the store is being run by Seven Darden, the character actor who was in a whole bunch of things, including one Planet of the Apes movie, for instance. And he's in a real camera shop um, along Sunset Boulevard or somewhere like that where they've got all these kind of headshots of classic Hollywood actors up on the wall behind him. So you get that. You get a billboard with Matt Munro on it. Apparently he was doing a gig in Los Angeles, so there's an enormous Matt Munro billboard in the same year that he did the theme song for the Italian job. It's um, And it's also got that 1960s, 1970s Los Angeles, which is covered in smog, and everything in the distance is blurred. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting film. The other thing, too, is uh, at one stage George stops to get petrol for his car, and the guy filling the petrol tank is Fred Willard, the comedian. So Fred Willard is in a Jacques Demy movie. So there's all these little bits and pieces there. And what Demy does try to do with Model Shop 2 is the thing that he does with every other movie he made, make the location one of the characters. And I think he succeeds with Los Angeles. Both he and Anya Zvada love Los Angeles, didn't necessarily love Hollywood, and the Hollywood movie-making machine because it fucked them over in some ways. But they did love Los Angeles, and that love does show in the movie. And in this one, we get the closure on that narrative universe of 1960s Jacques Demi. And until I saw this film, I didn't realise that they were all linked together. And though I don't love Model Shop as much as I love Lola, I do really appreciate it. I think it's um, a hidden gem of a film. I like the fact that it exists. I've got a um, debut movie poster for Model Shop, which I picked up way before I ever saw it because it was a Jacques Demy movie I hadn't seen. And the um, debut movie poster, the Australian debut movie poster, came up. And so I'm kind of glad I've got that now. That's kind of cool. And I'm trying to find a legitimate copy of it because all I've had is the streaming service version. So I will, at some stage, get a legit copy of Model Shop to keep because things on streaming services are dust in the wind they blow away very easily and very quickly and I re- it's one of those movies i really want to have a copy of 
But that's probably about as far as I want to go on this one. I really enjoyed both of these films. They kind of they're the, those kind of movies that, when you've been watching shit, really remind you why you love movies and why I spend so much of my time talking about them to various people through various media. And I highly recommend that you see it. If you're here in Australia, you can watch Model Shop on SBS On Demand. Or if you can get um, a VPN to let you in pretend you're Australian, you can do it as well. Though I would never recommend that anybody does anything underhanded at all on the internet. So anyway, thanks for listening. Um, thanks again for your patience while I got my shit together to get more episodes out. Thank you very much to the Patreon supporters who have waited while I get more episodes out too. Particularly Rich Chamberlain, who is still not in the credits, but is in the credits it is in the credits that I put at the end of the YouTube videos. By the way, if you want to get your head on, or at least your name on YouTube, you can definitely um, become a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar US per month, and your name will magically and forever appear on the credits of my YouTube videos, amongst other things. So in the meantime, watch some good movies, watch some bad movies, watch any movie you can get your hands on, recommend movies to each other, recommend them to me, and I'll be back soon with more movie-related wonderfulness. And of course, here are the credits in the style of movie credits to honour the Patreon supporters. And after that, I'll play some random wonderful piece of music for you as a post-credit sequence. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you real soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast. Done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller. Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Dietrich, and you dance like Zizi Jamais. Your clothes are all made by Palma, and there's diamonds and pearls in your hair. Yes, there are. You live in a fancy apartment off the boulevard Saint Michel, where you keep your Rolling Stones records and a friend. Of Sasha Distel, yes you do But where do you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed Tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do I've seen all your qualifications You got from the Sorbonne And the painting you stole from Picasso Your loveliness goes on and on Yes, it does When you go on your summer vacation You go to Jouin-le-Pin With your carefully designed topless swimsuit You get 
And even suntan on your back and on your legs And when the snow falls you're found in summer it's With the others of the jet set And you sip your Napoleon brandy But you never get your lips wet No you don't But where do you go to my lovely When you're alone in your bed Won't you tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head Yes I do Your name it is heard in high places You know the Aga Khan He sent you a racehorse for Christmas And you keep it just for fun For a laugh <laughs> They say that when you get married It'll be to a millionaire But they don't realize where you came from And I wonder if they really care or give a damn Where do you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed Tell me the thoughts that surround you I want to look inside your head, yes I do I remember the back streets of Naples Two children begging in the rags Both touched with a burning ambition To shake off their lowly bone takes And they try So look into my face, Marie Claire And remember just who you are Then go and forget me forever But I know you still bear the score Deep inside, yes you do I know where you go to, my lovely When you're alone in your bed I know the thoughts that surround you Cause I can look inside your head 